0: Welcome to the Musical Communication Podcast. I'm your host, Marianne Ploger, And during these podcasts, I'm looking forward to being able to explore all aspects of what it is to be musical, whether that is how we can be more musical as musicians, or how we can understand why we love music and why we think it's musical or why it isn't. So we'll be exploring everything from how to perform music, how to listen to music, as well as aspects of music and cognition.
1: Hi, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Musical Communication Podcast. My name is Karen and I'm your producer. I am sitting here with Marianne, your host. Welcome, Marianne. Thank you, Karen. Happy New Year, everybody. It is officially a new year. And for today's episode, we would like to talk about some tools and strategies for getting back whatever you're wanting to pursue this year musically with some strategies and some things that we've talked about. We'll definitely be recapping some previous episodes. So um, Marianne, where would you like to
0: start? Well, I'd like to start with the whole idea of how important improvisation is in Mm -hmm. terms of doing almost anything you want to in music. Um, I really do think that that's missing in our training, unless you're a jazzer or you're somebody who plays in a rock band, that very rarely do we classical musicians, for example, ever improvise. It's rare to find people who do. Often keyboardists do. Organists in church often have to improvise just like Bach had to. So those folks know how to do it, but most of us don't know how to begin. And so when we are asked to improvise, it's really frightening. So I love this whole thing of trying to improvise whatever it is you're doing that might be challenging. Let's say if you feel like your rhythm isn't good, a great thing to do is to just start off with those basic patterns of left, right, left, right, just for the two beats. Beat one on your, beating your hand, left hand on your left leg, left thigh, And then beat two is you're tapping with your right hand on your right thigh. So you'd imagine the number one on your left and two on your right. And just start with that and just say one two 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 one two one two one two, one, two, one, two. It seems like that is ridiculously easy. But if you're even trying, if you're in the car and you're at a stoplight, don't do this while driving. <laughs> <laughs> um, just doing that is amazing amazingly therapeutic. Why? Because you're deciding in the moment, in the flow, what you want to do. Are you going to beat one or two? And that you're coordinating it and that at first, you'll start feeling like, what am I doing? What, what, what? And you might even say, one, one, what, one, one." What? <laughs> so uh, whatever happens, try to just keep the flow and then just relax, and you'll get that easy groove. So just improvising something as basic as that can get the juices flowing, because I think that's what's crucial in, mm. in our practice. If you're doing some stuff like scales... Let's say you're really working on that D major scale. What can be really great is to just take the first five notes of the scale, set a tempo for yourself, just any kind of tempo. And then similarly, just play any one of the first five notes in the scale. But see if you can do it in the context of flow. So I believe the reason that this is so crucial is that's how we learn how to speak. And that's not... How we were taught. So I think that if I had my way, every child when they learn like twinkle twinkle little star, da 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 well probably what I would do is say, let's play around with just those two notes. You know, can you go da 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 and have the, the child just experience doing what they feel, but in the context of flow like with language.
1: Hmm. I love that. And why are we so afraid of improvisation?
0: I think it's just because we aren't asked to do it. So imagine, now I know for many of you who are listening or not classically trained, you probably think this is very strange, but most of us, when we learn to play in a classical training, We learn how to push buttons at the right time, Mm. okay? So you're told how to play certain notes, and then you have the notes on the staff, and then you play those. Suzuki, violin, and now Suzuki with other instruments is much better because they do more with just developing your ear so you're at least not reading immediately. So imagine this scenario. What would have happened to us if instead of being able to just talk, being taught a word and imitating our parents and saying, oh, dada, bring toy, dada, whatever, that we would be forming these thoughts. Imagine if instead all we could do is pronounce each one of the letters in the words and that they are written and that we would just say what those words are. So b r i n g. T-O-Y-D-A-D-A. But that's how we learn to play music. Yeah. Instead of bring toy dada. And so in music, it would be that you're performing rhythm. And by experience, performing rhythms, which I didn't get to do. I only could perform (laughs) the pieces I had in my Lila Fletcher piano book or John Thompson back in those days when I was learning piano and uh, then on to Beethoven for release. And I'm basically restricted in how I communicate. So each note, if we think of each note, each pitch as a letter, Hmm. those letters... When they're combined with another letter, form a syllable. <laughs> those syllables form words. <laughs> so in music, it's that's what we need to be doing, is being we need to realize knowing a note isn't enough. Playing a note on an instrument is just a letter. It forms a member of a chord, but before that of what I call a dichord, a pitch pair, which is like a syllable, and those are combined to form chords. And larger and larger sentences. And that our brain does, I think, very intuitively. But I believe it's inhibited in the way that we've been teaching. So Hmm. I think it's terrifying, because we've been quoting Shakespeare letter by letter (laughs) by playing the notes. And we're not saying anything of our own. Pop musicians and jazzers, this is not a problem. Because right from the get go, they're forming chords.
1: Yeah. And scales, you know,
0: so they are much more and they're having to do it in time. I'm sorry. You know, any garage band, they've got a drummer. (laughs) Right. And it's keeping them going.
1: Yeah. Interesting. This has to be one of my favorite analogies that you have made. (laughs) What is happening in downtown Nashville? If y'all can hear the sirens, sorry about that. Um, lots of excitement here. Um, this has been one of my favorite analogies that you've shared because as you were talking it makes perfect sense it's very similar to you know the ingredients and the flavors and the tastes and the colors but as a classically trained human myself i'm curious what is the difference between improvisation and making a mistake because i i studied with you know this cute little old lady my first instrument was piano she was trained in, in the Cuban conservatory and we you know we did solfege, we did all the things, but there was very strict guidelines around what was accurate and what was inaccurate. And even as a kid, when you're noodling around, you know, playing it, maybe your scales with the wrong fingerings, which is so faux pas and piano, like how, how do we get back to that childlike curiosity and, and know the difference between like, Oh, this was literally wrong versus I'm trying to improvise here.
0: Right. That's a very challenging problem Karen yeah I think that that approach that you had is going to be a dinosaur in other words I think it's going to die a natural death (laughs) Uh, maybe sooner than later I hope but uh, ultimately uh, it is because of the fact that it was considered a sin to be able to create things of your own because it would be inferior So I think I mentioned on an earlier podcast, my parents just said, no, you don't improvise uh, because it's dirty. It's jazz. It's so funny because my parents listened to pop music all the time and loved it. (laughs) But it was considered kind of dirty if you didn't play notes like that because it didn't sound good. Well, I'm so sorry. William Shakespeare did not speak like William Shakespeare when he was a toddler. He, He developed his... Acumen <laughs> He developed an understanding through expressing himself. So I think that it's an underestimation of, for example, your ability, my ability that we are just taught to press the buttons. that, that that's what happens. is you're taught to press the buttons because you can't do anything else. I believe, though, ultimately, what we should have done before we ever played that piano is we should have sung. And we should have danced, and we should have sung in rhythm, and danced and moved. That that should happen starting at the age, as young as a child can. Yeah. And then it should proceed before you ever try to play a musical instrument. That that we get the cart before the horse. Yeah. So I think that that's where it just got wired incorrectly, and I it's it's all for good reason or it wouldn't be there so it is important for us with your question about well how do we handle that as adults how do we get into it i think the important thing is that we're only steps away from being good at improvising but we have to start small and this is this is the secret we often want to sound like beethoven but we're not going to sound like beethoven without going through the steps that beethoven went through Hmm. But that's okay. You crawl before you walk. You walk before you run. <laughs> yeah. You run before you run a race. So ultimately, this is what I think we need. just need to sort of rewire in ourselves, adding every day a little bit of improvisation. And uh, something my husband and I did that got the juices flowing would be to create a musette, which is basically playing uh, a rhythm that is going yada-dee-da-da-dee-da-dee-da, just over and over again, uh, that it goes the tonic, that is the root of a chord, the fifth of the chord, the octave, and then back again. Just, we did this over and over again, and then you just play those notes, and then you fill in maybe the notes in between in the scale. So if you're playing uh then you just can play whatever you want, with that background going on so you can do that so easily now you can generate that with garage band and all that Mm -hmm. and that's what rock musicians do you know they have the groove going and then they practice on top of it yeah we can do that too but i think for classical musicians avoiding judging is so important Mm -hmm. lest you become as a child you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven Jesus Christ said that. (laughs) So uh, I think it's that we have to have that joy and being kind of a toddler. And uh, I'm amazed when I work with people. At first, they're very self-conscious when they're doing it uh, because they're judging. But as soon as they allow themselves to just let go, they begin to feel like, oh, this is really fun. What's great is to do it with other people and realize, oh, they chose to do something else than I did. And what's beautiful about that is that that the improvisation is revelatory of your soul because you're making Mm. a different decision. You're deciding to play a different note than somebody else or a different rhythm. Mm. But you're together. And it can sound darn good.
1: Yeah. It sounds like it's a great avenue too to build trust in
0: yourself. That's the main thing. Mm. So we now know very much that stuttering is the result of judgment that comes too early in life. So, for example, if any of you have seen the wonderful movie, The King's Speech, about King George, uh, he had a terrible stutter. And overcoming that was so difficult, but we now know he was in a terribly abusive situation where he was being judged and criticized constantly. So he couldn't put three words together without... I think, looking back, as I may say, you know, in my three causes of error, yeah. that his coach was in there all the time and is creating other issues, of course. But I think that getting so that we are in flow and music right off the bat is so important. So with my own method, doesn't matter if we're working on a rhythmic exercise, My students know how to perform those rhythms really well. But do they know how to use those rhythms to create their own rhythms? Yes. I'm just inviting them to get used to to exploring that. And and then we develop the ability to visualize how would that appear? When I'm improvising it, how would it look? Mm. In the same way that when I'm speaking now, I can imagine how those words look when written. To me, it's just a process of learning language.
1: I love that so much. That's so like mesmerizing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like a flow here, Marianne. (laughs) So sweet. So what besides improvisation, what other tool do you think we
0: need? My own feeling is that all of us need to become much better at a very basic skill that I believe we have mastered intuitively, or what I'll say is metaconsciously. And that is the ability to track musical intervals and in a very mechanical way. So try singing the Star-Spangled Banner. When you're doing that, you're singing a note down a minor third, down a major third, up a major third, up a minor third, up a a perfect fourth. If I said, now starting on the note F sharp is the first note, now what are the notes (laughs) that would correspond to those intervals? So at first you'll say, well, I didn't know it was a minor third and then down a major third and up a major third. I didn't know that. I said, I would say to you, yes, you did. You weren't consciously aware of it Hmm. if you sang it the least bit accurately. So I'll have people sing these alternating third, la, 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 la. You know, I'll have them do that. And I'll say, "Now, I want you to name each one of those intervals that you just sang. I mean, train wreck Hmm. for professional musicians. But they just sang it perfectly, beautifully. But they're not consciously aware of the fact that you sang a note, went up a major third, down a major second, up a minor third, down a minor second, up a minor third, down a major second, up a major third, down a major major second, up... Wow. So all we have to do is speed up, and it's a pure skill. This is not something that is is talent-based. It's like spelling. (laughs) It's just spelling. So... (laughs) (laughs) So a great game to do, similar to the improvising, is kind of improvising, is you start on a note and then you imagine the musical keyboard. You imagine your index finger is going to be the it's like a mouse cursor. Your index finger is going to move from one note to another note. And what you're going to do is calculate the number of semitones between the notes that you're just pointing to on the keyboard. So if you go like a D, all right, now go to an F sharp, uh, How many semitones were there? Well, you probably went from a D, and if you know what an F-sharp is, you just went there. But you know what, if you count as you move, you'll notice you go up two whole steps, you know, so D to E and E to F-sharp. You moved four semitones. If you move from F-sharp to A, now move your finger from F-sharp to A. What we have to develop is a skill to consciously know, I just moved up three semitones. I can go from an F-sharp to an A. There's that, that button pushing yes. where we were taught. How about knowing what the distance is? Because that's what the brain, you know. It's, it's feeling the distance. I didn't sing. Okay. So the brain is doing this at a much higher than conscious level. What we have to do is train our conscious mind to catch up. So just start by going up whole and a half steps on the piano, imagining that, and then once again, see if you can begin to do it in time. So you play a D, and then you go up a two to an E, and go up another two to an F sharp, down a one to an F, down a one, down a one, down a one, down a two, up a two, up, a two, up a two, down a one, down a two, up one, and you'll get faster and faster at it. And this is helping to connect pitch space perceptions hmm. that are metaconscious in my opinion that is above consciousness and then with, with what is conscious awareness I love the that keyboard. so much yeah and again think about that with your saxophone training how or piano training for that matter how much did we learn to do that no not at all not at all
1: yeah we were I, I personally my training was we were more focused on getting the right fingerings yeah than we were what was that's happening right.
0: that's the button pushing that's yeah. right. This note is played with this finger, whether it's on the saxophone or the piano or yeah. whatever instrument you're playing. And it mm. destroys, in my opinion, or damages our perception of pitch-based awareness.
1: Yeah. It was really cool, too, while you were just talking that, I immediately got a visual of the keyboard in my mind. <laughs> I was like
0: <laughs> looking at the little <laughs> sections. I was like, oh, that's so cool. Yeah, weird. that's it. That's it. <laughs> to me, the piano keyboard is such an important tool for the musician. Mm. It is really a ruler. That's what it is. And it allows us to imagine pitch space. And it can be intimidating to any of us. And I'll do an episode where we talk about that, a podcast about the piano. But you want to remember there are just 12 notes in every octave, just 12, like 12 months in a year. We can keep track of 12 months in a year. We can keep track of 12 hours in a half of a day, (laughs) a clock face. We can keep track of 12 notes in an octave. Yeah. So, um, and it's beautiful. And by the way, we can be very inspired. If you're seeing the keyboard like that, any piece of music that you're hearing can be measured on that keyboard. Mm. So, you know, the entire orchestra Mahler, symphonies, Brahms, uh, Coltrane, any of them, all of it on that musical keyboard. Mm. They're a note on that musical keyboard. Boom.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I feel like we like to do things in thirds. So Mm -hmm. is there another thing that you feel like we should add to our toolbox?
0: Yes. So thirds, that's when we start to build chords. So what you want to remember is that, I'm going to be paraphrasing J.S. Bach here, but essentially there is the large third, which we call the major third, thus large, and the small third, which is a minor third. The major third consists of 2 whole tones, that would be Bach, otherwise known as 2 plus 2 equals 4, 4 semitones, which is the modern language for calculating pitch space. We count semitones. So a minor third is 3 semitones. So a great thing to do is just go on the white notes of the keyboard and do that little thing we were just talking about where you're just using your index finger to follow around. And then you can do some really fun things, like building major triads. We all know this who have been classically trained. You know, C up to E is a four. E up to G is a three. That means C up to G is a seven, because four plus three equals seven. Okay. If you go from D and spell up thirds, you would have a D passing over with your index finger, the E to an F passing over the G to an A. That forms a different kind of triad. Why? Because D up to F is three semitones. D up to E, as when we saw earlier, E up to F sharp is a whole step. It's two semitones. E up to F is only one. So that's going to be a three, and then from F to A, F, my finger goes over the G, moving two semitones, and G to A is another two. Therefore, this is a minor triad. It has the small third in the bottom and the large third in the top and a 7 on the outside because 3 plus 4 equals 7. So, (laughs) you know, we don't have to be doing this business, in my opinion. It is important to know this theoretically, but I don't need to know that a minor triad has a minor third which is a semitone lower than the major third because the major third is the third scale degree of the key signature of the bottom note (laughs) really (laughs) i think j.s bach would be saying oh my gosh it's a whole tone plus you know yeah you're just counting whole and half steps that's all that's what we have to be calculating and you know of course to build a whole tone you have to know what your semitones are and anytime there's a black note in between two notes, you know it's a whole tone. There's a note in between. So these basic fundamental things are not things we were taught. I played scales forever, and then I remember as a senior in high school learning, there is a semitone between the third and fourth and the seventh and first degrees of the scale. How many years had I been playing a scale, and it seemed like it was too hard to figure out it's backwards I should have been building a major scale by doing whole and semitones and then f- fingering and a whole lot of other things would have made a lot more sense I believe yeah. so keeping it simple I won't add the stupid <laughs> <laughs> but uh, kiss. let's remove kiss. Uh yeah. but keeping it simple is crucial because I believe it is the truth of the way it is you know yeah we could that. have understood this stuff as three-year-olds.
1: Yeah, I love that so much. That's super helpful. Um, is there anything else you want to share before we wrap up?
0: Well, we'll be talking a lot more in the, in the new year about these things. And uh, so stay tuned.
1: Yes, <laughs> stay tuned. Um, if you like this episode, feel free to share it. Uh, make sure to tag us on your story on Instagram. And if you think about it, please leave us a review on Apple Music. You can find Marianne on her website, marianneploger.com, um, Facebook, the Ploger Method Community, um, and Marianne Ploger on Instagram. We will see you next week.